It's August 11th on this Wednesday morning. Jesperson in with Hoyles Brooks. This is episode 170 something of Real Talk. Thanks for being here with us, whether you're live streaming us this morning or whether you're downloading this podcast later in the day. It's great to have you here with us coming up in just a couple of moments. The health writer in Canada, Andre Picard of the Globe and Mail. We're going to be talking about vaccine passports. We're going to be talking about COVID. We're going to be talking about long-term care and whatever else comes up. But first, let me remind you, this show is presented every time by the team at Bitcoin Well, the only publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company in the world, proudly based out of Edmonton, Alberta, providing advice, counsel, services, When it comes to cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, you can find out more about Bitcoin well by checking out the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Big show today. Andre Picard has mentioned in about nine minutes time, we're going to talk about uh, political donations and uh, the bigger picture conflicts of interest. When does somebody officially become a shill? Uh, There's a bunch of shills writing about it in newspapers right now. So we thought we'd go outside that Lisa Young, uh, a professor of political science at the University of Calgary and Elise Mills, a political strategist with Sussex Strategy, going to be joining us coming up in about an hour from now. And then we're going to talk to astrologer Alice Sparkly Cat. They are one of the world's uh, most celebrated. Can we say currently most celebrated? Okay, this word, Sarah Hoyles, the editorial producer of this show. uh, I hate to put you in a tough spot, but I think language is important on this one. If I'm to describe Alice Sparkly Cat, may I say one of the more trendy astrological experts right now i mean tr- you, you could say well what are you saying they're a fad are you saying that this is a fad are you, but but i want to acknowledge that right now when you're talking astrology people aren't looking to you know those folks that appeared with the headline banners in the newspaper 75 years ago there's a whole new wave millennials are all over astrology and alice sparkly cat is one of the go-tos you betcha yeah astrology you can go on to instagram stories a lot of the time and astrologers will do like monthly readings um, they also use uh, tarot cards and they'll like pick a pile. So they'll do a reading, you pick a pile and then um, they'll do the reading. And do they really say tarot? It's like kind of en français tarot yeah. cards. What did you think it was? Tarot? Tarot. Tarot cards. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. Are you kidding me? Is this up for debate or am I just totally wrong? I've just always thought it was tarot. Yeah, I've, I've, I've also always thought it was tarot. So tarot, okay, think, two to think, one. Yeah, I think you're the outlier here. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. Well, the good thing is this is not a democratic studio. So <laughs> tarot cards? No, I, so tarot guys, cards it no, is. No, you guys are probably right. My extent, my extent of astrology or astrological knowledge would be no astro astronomical yeah astrological. Okay, because astronomical. astronomy because you get tied up on this. I right? totally agree with you. Astronomy. Yeah. Yeah is uh you know what i'm this this show is called real talk i'm not going to keep trying to be so careful it's fine like look at the poll results right now i've put this out an unofficial unscientific twitter poll okay we've asked you this morning we posted it just about half an hour ago and we're looking forward to seeing where this goes during the show horoscopes what say you millennials are said to be obsessed with astrology and then of course we promote that alex alice sparkly cat is coming up on the show later today but i've asked you horoscopes what say you and so far of the 230 
or so votes, 59%, approximately 6 out of 10 are saying, oh, come on, no way. 36.6, let's call it 37%, generous rounding up, say, "Eh, sure, they can be fun. That's me. I mean, I'm kind of both. I'm, oh, come on, no way, and sure, they can be fun. 4% are absolutely, I buy in 100%, and honorable mention to thus far the best comment of the morning from Michaela McQuaid, who is tuning in from Washington, D.C. She says, I require option four. How else would I navigate the astral plane when Mercury is in retrograde? Retrograde. I can't even talk astrology. Retrograde. That's not a tough one. I should be able to pull that one off. Tarot, say it with, with me. Tarot with, without, retrograde. Without boring us to tears, can you explain what Mercury in retrograde is? No, that's what you need an astrologer for. Okay, fair enough. Well, good thing we've got Alice Sparkly Cat coming up. I promise that the interview will obviously be fair. It's going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. But I'm just curious, and I think that we're going to get some interesting insight into people. If if you were to, if I were to sit down, I don't know why I'm picturing sort of when I used to read horoscopes. Yeah. And I think it would be as as a kid after when high school classes wrapped and there was about an hour before basketball practice started. And I can't even believe I did this thinking of how heavy my stomach must have been at the time. I would go have a meatball sub at Subway before basketball practice. Just a weird move. But there was always an hour to kill. And I would sit there and I would crush my meatball sub. I would make sure I got my two stamps for the card that would back when I used to carry reward cards. Couldn't pay me enough to carry reward cards now. And uh, and I would sit there and then they'd always have a complimentary copy of usually a a rag newspaper and there would always be the horoscopes. So I I can tell you, at least I know what sign I am. And I know that the the common you are. I'm an Aries and I and I see a lot of people. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, typically. okay, so there you are on that. Uh, People have varying knowledge. The people that really know the signs say to me, you're an Aries, right? And I'm like, whoa, get out of town. That always kind of knocks my socks off just a little bit. But eh. And uh, but I will say this, like reading those horoscopes. I was once prompted by a horoscope to invest in a stock that to this point has paid off big time. It's tripled since I bought it. Seriously, I'm trying to decide right now whether or not I should tell the story. It's is Andre Picard with us? He is. I'm not telling the story. We got Andre freaking Picard on the show and I'm sitting here telling stories about how I bought a stock based on a horoscope. The guy's, you know, it's not going to happen. So we're going to get to him in just a second. Right now, we want to let you know, this is really exciting. The Edmonton Symphony Orchestra thrilled to announce the return of Symphony Under the Sky. It's taking place in William Horlack Park, August 26th through September 5th. Simply Symphony Under the Sky includes imaginative performances suitable for all audiences, featuring everything from classical gems to Hollywood hits. And of course, capping off summer with Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. It's a mix of shorter, abbreviated, and longer programs. There's distanced seating options. Keep in mind, Horlack Park, this is outside. Unbelievable experience. The festival excitedly features the entire Edmonton Symphony Orchestra performing together for the first time since March of 2020. This is huge, super exciting. There's two programs. There's festival favorites, and tickets start at $20 plus service fees. You can even get grass seating. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. You're sitting on the grass hill listening to the ESO play. Get this, free to kids aged 17 and under accompanied by an adult. You can find more details at windspearcenter.com. That's more details, windspearcenter.com. 
Well, Andre Picard is is easily one of Canada's top health and public policy commentators. He's been reporting with the Globe and Mail for, for coming up on 35 years. He's been named Canada's first public health hero by the Canadian Public Health Association and as a champion of mental health by the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. He received the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for his dedication to improving health care. It's a real pleasure to have him here on the show. Mr. Picard, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for doing this. Good morning. I'm looking forward to to digging into some subjects that I, that I know you've you've written pretty clearly on, but they can be contentious, can't they? Once you start talking about vaccine passports, I mean, I see some people I'm not going to say it's helpful. Uh, some people are invoking uh, World War II imagery, specifically the Holocaust, talking about how how people around the world have been discriminated against before. How do you approach a conversation like this? Yeah, there's a lot of over-the-top the rhetoric. I think we have to try and keep the discussion about, yes, there is a rights aspect to this. Uh, we have to protect people's rights, but we also have to put rights are not absolute. We have to think of the rights of people to be healthy, the rights of people to, to uh, move about freely. These are not simple trade-offs, and uh, we, we should discuss this stuff openly. But when you just say anyone who wants a, a vaccine certificate is Hitler, I, I think that kind of puts a damper on debate, to, to say the least. Yeah to say the very least so i mean i I see what's what's going on across the country and obviously different jurisdictions are managing this differently i've heard in manitoba qr codes on your phone to prove vaccination status are kind of par for the course right now big conversations going on in our home province of alberta where a lot of people are saying hell no there's a lot of talk of freedom and liberty that kind of a thing when you take a look across the country right now what are some of the key storylines that you're following I think the key one is that one. It's a, will we have vaccine certificates? We saw Quebec go big on this yesterday. That's interesting. We're seeing calls even from business people saying, I think what people want more than anything is clarity. So I think that's the, the big storyline for me here is people want to know what exactly are the rules and the rules are all over the map around the country. So that's frustrating for people. So, you know, the vaccine certificates is a big issue. The Delta variant we have to on the science side is concerning. It seems to spread a lot more readily. And I think to me, one of the big issues is is children. What's going to happen with children? Uh, They've become the big unvaccinated group. School is coming. School plans around the country are very, very vague. So I think those are the three big ones for me that we're watching. I guess, uh, you know, you could answer this question by saying, well, I mean, everybody's got to follow the documents, the structures already in place. And I understand when you talk healthcare, a lot of times, you know, the, the provinces get pretty bristly if they perceive that the federal government's going to attempt to tell them what to do about anything. We saw that recently, a little bit of a dust up publicly between Alberta's public health or Alberta's health minister, rather, Tyler Shandro and, and Patty Hyde, the federal minister of health. When it comes to talk around things like vaccine passports oftentimes it also falls to the municipalities and then even below them sometimes individual business owners where they perceive there to be a a lack of policy or a lack of leadership or taking steps themselves Uh, some might call it unproductive you've talked about this almost cacophony of of policy do you envision a scenario where it might be i mean is it even the role of is it even possible for the federal government to step in and say hey this is what we think should be the case across the country or is that ridiculous 
You know, I always say every discussion, political discussion in Canada always comes down to the Constitution, which I find frustrating. But my answer to that is always there's no constitutional impediment to cooperation. So that's what they, we need. I don't care what the Constitution says. There's nothing that says that uh, Alberta and Ottawa can't sit down and have an agreement or that uh, the province can't sit down with the municipality and have agreements. And that's what we need. So we need some guidance. I don't think we need strict rules. But uh, what's coming, I think, is with passport or I prefer to call them certificates, is we're going to have some common app that's usable in every province. I think ultimately that's what we need. Uh, regardless of how every individual province uses it, we have to have that technology. And that's they're working on that, but governments are very slow. So they're talking about that won't be available till December. And that's way too slow. We should be able to do this stuff overnight. If you took a couple of uh, high school nerds, uh, they could probably create an app like that uh, overnight in their basement. And that, that's what we need is just some practical uh, stuff like that. Uh, the, the system in, uh, you mentioned Manitoba works very well, the QR code, or you have a paper record as an alternative. There's no reason we can't have that in every province and have something that's usable. You know, people are worried what happens when you travel, especially when in border towns. So this stuff has to be dealt with and, and very quickly. I'm just going to put this on the record, Andre, on, on August 11th in this conversation with you, that if and when the federal government introduces any form of app related to vaccination tracing, I guarantee you the province of Alberta is going to push back. They didn't want anything to do with the federal app around contact tracing either. And it turned into what I think should have actually been a bigger story here. It was not well rolled out. Yeah, well, I hope at some point we'll put aside partisanship on both sides. Ottawa and, and Alberta have both been sniping on these things. And, and look what the public needs. And I always come back to this. People want guidance. They want something practical. They don't really care about the, the petty politics behind it. Yeah, unless it interferes with them getting good health care, right? I think that's what really irks people for obvious reasons. Before we move on, I want to ask you about why you believe we need to brace ourselves for more COVID nastiness. But first, we spoke with the health law policy expert, uh, Dr. Ubaka Ogbo from the University of Alberta uh, just a few days ago on the show back. I think it was August 5th. And uh, I want to get you to comment on one thing he had to say, the precursor to this, or I'll, let me tee this up by letting you know that he thinks that vaccine passports or certificates, he thinks they're a bad idea. He doesn't support them. I asked him to explain why. Here he is. We're going to do it. That we should have some standardized way of doing it. I think that makes perfect sense. But that to me is not a question. The question is, should we do it? Hmm. Is it good to do it. If we agree that it's good to do it, then sure, the government should step in and provide something that is standardized. But we need to answer the initial question as to whether or not it is ethical and legal and good to do it. I don't believe that it is. We seem to You think that it could actually be unethical or even illegal, as he implies? Well, I think time will tell. These things get worked out in court, but I think it's practical. So I think we have to go with the practical at this point. We can't get hung up on the on the legal details. I think we do have to be really careful about being ethical, that we don't, for example, shut out people from participating in society because they don't have an iPhone. You know, there has to be alternatives. I've said this all along. Uh, some people, uh, you know, say, for example, with vaccination, some people are unable to get a vaccine. They should be able to have an alternative to be tested. So there always has to be a balance 
repellents in these uh, these movements to, to limit freedoms. But I, I personally don't think it's unethical. I don't have the the insight of Dr. Ubaka. He has, you know, he's a law professor, but that's just my my gut feel talking to other people. If you're just tuning in, streaming us live on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to Globe and Mail health reporter, columnist and bestselling author Andre Picard. Andre, a couple of days ago, August 9th, you wrote in the Globe, uh, quote, the much dreaded fourth wave of COVID-19 has begun in much of Canada, fueled by the Delta variant. It could be the toughest one yet. Uh, What gives you that sense? Well, tough in the sense, I was careful to say, I don't, the numbers are not going to reach what they did in the past, which is good because we've really, in Canada, really embraced vaccination. So it's not going to be the numbers, but I think what we're going to see is we're going to see young people hit a lot harder. So all the indications from other jurisdictions, from Europe, from the US in particular, is a lot of children are getting uh, infected with the Delta variant. You know, kids under 12 can't be vaccinated. And a percentage of them, a small percentage, but a concerning percentage are getting very, very sick. So we're seeing, you know, in Louisiana, in Mississippi, in Florida, the the states with uh, high case loads of of COVID, pediatric hospitals are literally overflowing. I was reading this morning that in all of Texas, there's two empty pediatric beds. So if there's a school bus crash tomorrow morning, what happens? This this is serious stuff. It has repercussions. I I think that's what we have to be cautious of. Andre, what do you think it is about uh, young people? I realize that question makes us both sound pretty old, doesn't it? But but we're seeing it. I mean, I've heard it from you and I've also heard it from the so-called front lines. I was to, talking to somebody involved in hospital admissions that has a really clear sense of what beds look like in Calgary's hospitals right now, specifically the Rocky View Hospital, which is a huge south side hospital. She said that ER and ICU is a real problem. And she reported exactly what you're telling us, that they're seeing more and more young people. It's, it's not like the messaging hasn't been out there. It's not like nobody understands COVID-19. Is there is there that sort of bulletproof sense? What do you think it is? No, I think it's just, it's largely just math. It's a, they're the unvaccinated population now. So they're most at risk. We have this variant that spreads a little more readily. So kids are not at much greater risk than they have been throughout this, but we're just going to focus on them a lot more. You know, there've been kids in hospitals throughout this. Largely, they don't seem to be uh, as impacted as adults, which is great. They have strong immune systems, et cetera. So what's happening with kids has been actually a blessing that they haven't gotten that sick, but we're just going to see a lot more focus focus on them now because uh, older people aren't getting sick and getting hospitalized anywhere near the same rates as they were before. Yeah, I, I want to clarify, though, you know, we're seeing numbers of, of covid cases and, and more prominently in like 20 to 30 year olds, uh, which are people that have had access to vaccinations that I, for whatever reason have just decided to not get vaccinated. And we had some really interesting insight every week. We, we ask a question of the week. Our research and strategy partners at Y Station help us out with that. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we took the temperature, how people felt around COVID-19 and, you know, emerging out of it and provinces relaxing restrictions and things like that. And, and we asked people what they thought might be an effective way to convince the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. And it was some interesting insight. Very few people thought that it was worthwhile an investment in another awareness campaign, billboards, online kind of stuff. I I get the sense that people think if you haven't got the message by now, you're just choosing to not get the message. Would you concur? I think, you know, we know that there's a lot of different groups who are hesitant about vaccines for different reasons. I think we also know the most clear influence on anyone is their peers. So you really have to get into communities and you have to have peers 
just communicating these messages, especially in uh, linguistic communities, for example, uh, that that's what matters. What matters is what your neighbors and your friends think. So we have to find a way of infiltrating the messages in there. Uh, unfortunately, the other thing that's very, very effective in changing people's minds uh, about vaccines is their loved ones getting very, very sick and dying. We see these stories repeatedly. Uh, to me, that's not the ideal public health uh, messaging, but unfortunately that, that one works. So I think we have to get that that double marrow message out there. And I think we have to sell people on the advantage of it. And that's why uh, that's a lot of the reason behind something like a vaccine certificate is it's just an impetus. You know, you're not going to be able to go to the football game. You're not going to be able to go to the restaurant without a vaccine. A lot of people are just can't be bothered. So that's going to push them. Uh, and we've seen this in places like France and Italy, where they have strict vaccine certificates that uh, the vaccination rates have jumped tremendously. Andre, what's this been like for you? I think, uh, you know, easily Canada's most respected health writer, uh, you know, 35 years essentially of experience, award winning, you know, author of multiple books. Have you ever covered anything over the course of your career? I mean, could, could you compare COVID-19 and this pandemic to anything? What's it been like through your experience? And there's stories that have been more intense in the short term. There have been stories that have been more uh, dramatic in the long term, you know, like AIDS. But this one's kind of a combination of just sort of nonstop for 18 months of, of twists and turns and, and public interests. Uh, never have we had more readership or listeners in the media. Uh, so there, there's an element of, uh, you know, just a lot of constant nonstop coverage of this. And uh, uh, we're seeing in the media, like we're seeing in healthcare, we're seeing people getting burned out. It's just on and on and on, and it gets frustrating. So you have to try and I, I try and keep my, my eye on the long game, see this as a marathon and have to pace ourselves. But uh, I also re remind people that things are getting dramatically better. Mm. You know, it's things are looking way, way better than they were when I started covering this in January of 2020. We have vaccines. We know a lot more about the virus. We know how to, we know what works and what doesn't. So we, we just have to keep plugging away and uh, we're, we're almost there. You, January of 2020, I, I'm going to be honest with you, in February of 2020, like we were somewhat aware, obviously, of what was going on. And people, I think, knew of the story in Wuhan and were starting to kind of keep an eye on it. But as is the case with with human beings, you know, until something impacts us or affects us, it's not really on our radar. I can't say I'm embarrassed to say, but it just paints a pretty clear picture of where we were at late February. My wife and I were down in Las Vegas in a hockey arena with 18,000 people. I mean, it was life per usual. Everybody, I was working hockey games for the Edmonton Oilers in early March. And then everything, as you know, obviously, around March 12th-ish, just hit a wall. I mean, you were writing about this back in January. Do you remember the first couple of stories? And did you have a sense at that time that this would be, you know, sort of have the magnitude of effect that it did and has? I'm not going to lie and say I was prescient and I knew this was going to be bad, but I was, as all of us, uh, I'm kind of an infectious disease nerd, like many health reporters are. All of us who saw, I, I tweeted about this in December of 2019, when we saw Wuhan, a lot of us who covered SARS just went, uh, this red light went off and said, 
oh boy, this really looks like SARS 15 years ago. Hopefully it won't be as bad. So we are, you know, we were paying attention right from the start. I think I wrote my first story on, on January 10th saying exactly that, saying, well, what's going on in China is, is bad. And this really looks like SARS. We have to get ready now. Now, unfortunately, we didn't get ready. As you said, life went on as usual. We just sort of dismissed this. Oh, it's another uh, variation on the flu. No big deal. And uh, unfortunately, we were wrong. It's okay here if you want to defer to to your colleagues on, on the Globe and Mail's political desk. That's fine, but but I'm curious to know your take on. Obviously, I won't say how much of an issue do you think uh, COVID or pandemic response will be in this federal election that everybody's expecting? Because obviously, I think the election will be about pandemic management and who Canadians believe is the best party to lead the country forward in its recovery. But what are you expecting to see on the campaign trail? Is this going to be all about COVID? 19 and if so what do you think might be the liberal vulnerability and and what do you think might be a strength yes i don't think the campaign will be all about covid i think it's going to be largely about how do we get out of covid Mm -hmm. so what's the post-covid going to be what's our health system going to look like what's our economy going to look like are we going to invest in uh domestic vaccination production. I think we're getting really good hints in the in this period, in the lead up to the election about what, what the Liberals are going to be talking about. We're getting all these announcements about vaccine plants, about uh, childcare. So I, th- I think, yeah, the COVID is going to change everything in politics, in the economy. So it's unavoidable. Uh, personally, I, I don't think it's a good time for a, an election uh, because of the fourth wave. I think it's going to make the, the pandemic discussion much more partisan, which is the worst possible thing that could happen. But I see from a, a point of view of a government, uh, the, the lesson from around the world is it is a good time uh, to have an election. It's really good for incumbents to go to the polls during uh, a, a crisis. Uh, unfortunately, that's the case. And I think that's why it's going to happen. Yeah. To state the obvious, if if there is, uh, you know, heaven forbid, some some big fourth wave that becomes a real problem, Uh, The timing of that election, I think, could really blow up in liberals face. I do think they're taking a bit of a risk there. Oh, absolutely. But I think the risk is the trade off is they look everywhere and say uh, where there have been elections during the pandemic. It's been really good for the incumbents. And I think that's going to be ultimately what decides the the, the, the makes them pull the trigger. Yeah. Andre, do you what do you think Canadians have changed their minds about or, or or maybe come to appreciate more or maybe made more of a priority because of this pandemic. I know that some people would say they'd love to see more federal and provincial funding for labs uh, and research labs uh, across the country. That's been a big conversation, I know, especially around vaccine procurement. Some people may recognize that, you know, uh, you know, better access for marginalized populations needs to be more of a priority. There's certainly an angle we could take on the opioid crisis uh, through this. What are you picking up? You've got your finger on the pulse. I think a couple of things. I think uh, people have, re- you know, there's no question the pandemic has uh, hurt some groups much more than others. Uh, working women have been the most affected by this pandemic practically, and that's why we're seeing big childcare announcements in the pro- in every province almost, uh, with few exceptions, federally. So I think that's a big one. We're going to have to deal with the the changing workplace, the role of women in the workplace, and childcare is an obvious going to be a big discussion during this campaign. I think elder care. I hope that's 
going to be a big discussion uh, during the pandemic. I wrote a book about uh, elder care uh, and how COVID exposed what a, f- a gross failure that is. You know, we've had about uh, 26,500 deaths in Canada and 18,000 of those were among elders in long-term care. So we really have to fix that. I think a, a party that has a good plan to fix elder care, you know, to uh, allow people to stay where they want to stay in the community, stay at home, uh, to fix long-term care so that it's not prison-like. I think a party that has a good message on that one is going to do very well. And then I think there's going to be, as you said, I think it's going to be a lot of economic discussion. I think the Liberals have made clear that uh, the cornerstone of their economic recovery plan is going to be life sciences. So big investments in vaccine plants. Uh, And we've seen, I I forget how many of those in the last two weeks, I think I counted up a couple of billion dollars worth in the last couple of weeks of new announcements, including a Moderna plant yesterday. So I think those are the biggies for me, elder care, child care and and life sciences. Yeah, I want to ask you more about your book in just a minute, Neglected No More. Uh, Let me ask you on on the vaccine procurement front. I know that that was one that was very political. Um, You know, I I think of of an Alberta MP, Michelle Rempel-Garner, who speculated perhaps it was hyperbolic, but she speculated that Canadians may not be vaccinated until 2030. And I know a lot of people were upset to see that other countries were ahead of Canada in procuring vaccines. I'll note that this is a pretty privileged conversation, considering what vaccine access looks like in some developing nations right now. But overall, how would you assess how Canada fared on that front? I think there's no question we were slow to the slow to the party. We got a really slow start. It was really concerning in the early days, uh, but we've caught up and then some. We have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. So we took this policy of purchasing, doing a large number of purchases of vaccines from multiple providers. I think uh, ultimately we accidentally had a good program. I don't think it was planned. I think it was dumb luck that it worked out and we have to do better. There's no question uh, countries that produce domestically uh, have dibs and this is going to be more and more important in the future. So I think we, uh, we, I think to a large extent, we lucked out on vaccination. But again, it's one of those things where there was no perfect way of doing this. Every country has struggled in different ways. And I saw, you know, I wrote from the beginning, I think we have to uh, in this look at the long run. I remember writing in February when everyone was uh, having hysterics about, you know, we're never going to get the vaccine till 2030. Some of the comments you read, I was saying, I guarantee by the summer we'll be swimming in vaccine. We won't know what to do with it. Our fridges will be overflowing. And that's exactly what happened. I think a lot of this stuff was predictable if you if you read the contracts, if you looked at what happened in the rest of the world. So we tend to get hysterical about things that uh, are self-resolving over time. Hmm. Uh, I had a, an opportunity to talk to long-term care advocate, uh, uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, a few days ago. Have you ever spoken to her? Yes, Dr. S is very known, very well known in the, the community. Yes. Yeah, I mean, she is her. Uh, can I say enthusiasm or passion for it? I mean, she she was like, it was incredible. I, I would just I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the conversation. And just I mean, her advocacy is fierce, uh, certainly. And um, I felt like she kind of gave us, in a sense, I won't say marching orders, but a really clear idea of how she thinks that long term care needs to be improved. She didn't pull any punches when she talked about, you know, you know, you might call it state ownership or, or public ownership administration versus private uh, unionized employees, uh, some you know issues systemically that she sees throughout. That was back on August 5th. If people want to check out our podcast archive or you can find it on, on YouTube, you you I mean, you've literally written the book on this, right? Neglected No More, a uh, book that's, that's uh, out certainly 
tackling long-term care and, and what you say is the urgent need to improve the lives of Canada's elders in the wake of a pandemic. Can, can you take us into this? I mean, it's one thing for you to write a column. Everybody looks for your columns. When, when does that cross that bridge to, to you saying, I need to write this, I need to turn this into a book? Well, when it becomes a much larger societal issue, you know, we're in an aging society where our long-term care facilities are overflowing. They're, for the large part, they're terrible. People don't want to be there. So to me, it was just, it's an issue I've written about for a long time. And COVID really just shone a spotlight on it. So for me, it was an opportunity to to bring together a lot of these issues and use COVID as, as a launching pad. And as I said earlier, I think this is really a big, big political issue for the future because, uh, you know, that demographic, People over 65 are one of the largest uh, cohorts in society now. We have more people over 65 than under 15 now. So these issues are really important. And what COVID to me really drove home was the message is that people don't want to be institutionalized. They want to stay at home. They want to stay in the community as long as possible. And we're not giving them that. We're giving them exactly what they don't want. We're sending them off to institutions uh, literally to die. Uh, You know, as I mentioned before, by the thousands, 18,000 people died in these institutions. And those deaths were almost all preventable. We there are many countries around the world that had zero deaths in long-term care. Uh, and it's because of a systemic failure. The system uh, was designed to fail and it failed in a monumental fashion during COVID. And I think if we if we don't learn that lesson, uh, if 18,000 deaths doesn't make us change the system, uh, kind of, I think we should despair at the ability of politics to, to, to correct societal failings. Yeah, as as Dr. Stavatopoulos pointed out on the show the other day, two out of every three deaths in the country uh, were in long term care. I mean, that's a pretty striking statistic uh, for people. Do you think I mean, do you have faith, Andre, in, in the political system? I'm not asking you to answer in a partisan way, but I mean, is there the political will to actually tackle this? It sounds to me like we're talking about, you know, I live in a heritage neighborhood. Sometimes you got to prop these houses up, dig under them and pour a whole new foundation. Is that what we're talking about? Well, yes, to a large part, we have to restructure, rebuild the system from almost from scratch. But I, I think it's doable. Uh, you asked me on the political side, it really depends on the day. There are days that I despair. There's days that I'm hopeful. Uh, what gives me the most hope is that, uh, as I say in the book, you know, we know all the problems. We know all the solutions. There's actually been 150 government reports written since the advent of Medicare on how to fix long-term care. There's no secrets whatsoever. Uh, We have a lot of examples of excellent care homes. I always underline that. There's some great ones. And what we should be doing is scaling those up instead of repeating our failures. So all the the problems are known, all the solutions are there, and we just have to act. So to me, uh, there's a real opportunity for uh, politicians to to get a to score a lot of points here by doing stuff that's pretty straight straightforward and simple so so that does give me hope yes andre do you think that the, the current federal government do you think that the trudeau liberals have closed the book on a national pharmacare program i think one of the uh unexpected things that happened with COVID is uh pharmacare really fell down the list of priorities i think we we've seen it uh, 
lapped by elder care. We've seen it lapped by child care and pharma care is sort of priority number 52 now instead of priority number one or two. So I think that I don't think anybody's closed the book. Uh, we're going to just have to have this creeping filling in of some of the spaces, hopefully. But I, I, a big central program is just I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Before we thank you for your time, I want to note, by the way, we guests always deserve a huge shout out when they join us on their vacation. And we're so grateful <laughs> for that, Andre. We're going to let you get back to some well-deserved recharge time. But I have to ask you about Canada's opioid crisis. I happen to know here in Alberta, the numbers uh, demonstrate the heartbreaking reality that in Alberta alone, we lose four people uh, to an opioid overdose every single day. It's uh, an absolute, people call it the other health crisis right now. The Alberta government has said one of the reasons it's moving on from a lot of its COVID restrictions is so it can focus more on this opioid epidemic. How would you assess this federally? I mean, you're a health writer. Where's your head and your heart at with what you're seeing? I think it's a reminder that, yes, COVID is important, but there are many other uh, important issues, and opioids is really near the top of the list. Uh, it can never be in public health. It can never be an either or. We have to tackle both, and there's a lot of overlap here. We know there's a dramatic spike in deaths during COVID, and that's not, not surprising because the marginalized communities were, were affected by COVID, and that uh, rippled over to, to the opioids crisis. So I, I think, again, it's a, an area where we know the problem. Problem. We know the solutions and we just have to have some some political guts to do things that are uh, a little risky, decriminalizing drugs, having safe supply, uh, embracing harm reduction measures. These are things that make people uncomfortable. But it's not because that they make us uncomfortable that we shouldn't do them or that they shouldn't that they don't work. Uh, the final thing I'd say about opioids is we really have some some pretty nasty stereotypes. We think that the people who are dying are, you know, all junkies uh, to use a horrible word on the streets and that's not the reality who's dying more and more are our young people uh, you know in their 20s young workers construction workers your grandmother a lot of older people are dying of opioids because they're over prescribed this is a pandemic that like covid strikes people right across uh, society uh, in ways that we don't imagine. So we have to stop, uh, turn our eyes away, I, th I think, a bit from thinking this is all a street drug problem and realize this is a, a large epidemic across the big swath of society. Andrew Picard uh, named Canada's first public health hero by the Canadian Public Health Association. Uh, he's been a, a huge part of the Globe and Mail's team uh, since 1987, the author of five best-selling books, including Neglected No More. Andre, thanks so much for making time for us today. T to speak frankly, it's been an honor to talk to you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You bet. You can read Andre's work, of course, by subscribing to the Globe and Mail, which we encourage you to do just like we do here at Real Talk. We love to support great journalism. The Pinnacle International Triathlon event is coming to Edmonton. That's right. The World Triathlon Championships from August 20th through 22nd are on their way. And you can check it out all online at edmonton.triathlon.org. I'm really excited to point out this morning. If you go on the website under legacy programs, you're going to see this tri school how cool is this so they've got a goal of providing 10,000 young people the opportunity to participate in their first triathlon they're encouraging active living they've been hosting international events for more than 20 years WTS Edmonton so they know what they're doing their passion for triathlon continues to grow each year and they know a big part of that is the next generation of triathletes 
as the best athletes in the world, many of them coming from the Olympic Games in Tokyo, make their way to Edmonton from August 20th to 22nd. You're encouraged to do the exact same thing. You can check out the information around the variety of events for all ages and all skill levels. There's limited spots, but registration's open right now at edmonton.triathlon.org. A big shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They let us know in July. They said August is going to be big for us. It's a meaningful promotion for us. Every child matters. Every cone counts. The Dairy Queens at Palisades Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road for the next month. Well, until the end of August, you got 20 more days, three more weeks, are donating a dollar for every cone sold to the Wakutuin Society, a society that provides retreats. Uh, for indigenous women that have survived residential schools and cancer. Retreats where they can get their mental and physical and spiritual well-being to a point where they can return to their communities in leadership roles. It's such an inspiring reality at the Wakutuin Society. You can learn more online and, of course, go visit our friends at Dairy Queen. Also, a reminder that Athabasca University, as all of the other elements of your life potentially return to in person, at least some of them are easing there, doesn't mean that your online schooling has to change. They've been doing this for years. They are Canada's online university, which means they're well-equipped to explain exactly how you can better yourself without leaving the comfort or the convenience of your own home and your own timeline. You can learn more about how AU works including their programs and courses at AthabascaU.ca. I love it when the music times out perfectly like that. That is I, sometimes you would, most people would say you should have just left it at that. And but sometimes you got to point it out. Such a pro. You know? Such, Such a, a pro. pro. It's like we're not going to show it because we don't have the rights to show it. But it's like, did you see that L.A. Dodger sliding into home base last night? Yes, Has everybody seen it? Yeah. It's like it's, it's like when something just if you have not seen it, just uh, basically Google Dodger slide and you'll see it. And if you have seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, taking a look here at our unofficial, unscientific, real talk poll on my Twitter at Ryan Jesperson this morning. Horoscopes. What say you? Uh, we're about 50. Let's call it 45, 50 minutes away from checking in with Alice Sparkly Cat. Millennials said to be obsessed with astrology. We're going to find out why. We've asked you how you feel about it. And to this point, with about closing in on 350 votes, 56% say, come on, no way. 40% say, yeah, sure, they can be fun. And 3.5% of respondents absolutely buy in 100%. So there you go. Now, do you want to hear the story about how I... (laughs) So I meet this guy on a scuba dive boat. I'm going to keep the story as quick as possible. And I was surrounded on the dive boat by a bunch of vibe killers. You know, people that were like, you know, they're just they're getting a little too dive nerdy, right? Nobody was like just letting the sun hit their face and realizing here we are off Cozumel, Mexico, and we're about to go dive with sharks and turtles and rays. And it's going to be unbelievable. They're all like, man, I got the new like XL 4000 watch, which will con- c- calculate the whatever. And I see there's this one guy in the back of the boat and he's just there and he's like got his arms stretched out like this. He's just got a big smile on his face. He's like, he's right. kind of like Matthew McConaughey and Dazed right and Confused. On, right you know, on, right all on. right, all right, all right. He's that kind of guy, right? And he's got sun, sunnies on and, and I'm like, I'm going to go sit with that guy. So I'm like climbing over. I'm excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, climbing over and I go sit beside this guy. We start talking. He's, he goes, where are you from? I'm like Edmonton, Canada. He goes, oh, right on. He goes, I'm from Ontario, but I'm not an asshole. And I was like, oh, we're going to get along. <laughs> I like this guy. So we start talking. I'm like, what's your business? 
what do you do? And he's like, I mine gold. I'm like, you mine gold. That's fascinating. And so we start talking, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, he tells me about his company. He's like, I think that I think it's a bullish investment. I, I, my, my girlfriend and I, we're buying as much of the company stock as we can. And I'm like, oh, that's always interesting. But like everybody gets stock tips. Beware the buddy stock tip. Right. I've, I've swung and missed on a lot of them. And, uh, you know, you're always like, ah, you can throw a few hundred bucks here, a couple thousand bucks there, whatever. And then typically it just evaporates. Right. Because everybody thinks they've got the hot tip, but it doesn't always go that way. So I get back home. Back in Canada, we've been there for a few weeks and I happen to open up a newspaper and I open up and to the horoscopes and they're under Aries. It's like something like I don't remember exactly what it was like. There was like all these gold reference. It was it was like this is your golden opportunity to cash on the cash in on the ticket that was handed to you sitting in your pocket. There was like all this kind of thing. And I was like. I signed. It's a sign. And I went onto my iTrade account and I bought like, a, you know, not like a ton. I mean, it was not a wealthy man at the time, nor am I now. But, you know, it's my, like a decent amount, but like it would be a big swing. And it's like tripled since then. Get out of town. Yeah. So, hey, I mean, the ones I'm going to say the horoscope kind of like people are just I can hear people rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> See, I uh, like w- watching them on Instagram and Instagram stories. Um, I'm a Gemini. And so I like watching my Gemini like monthly, like what's going to happen this month. And when I was applying for this job, yes, it said that, you know, there's going to be that like, this is going to be a fantastic opportunity. Great opportunity is coming your way. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And then bada bing, bada boom. And then that fell apart. You wound up here. <laughs> um, <laughs> some random guy says, I'm just going to say, and I knew that I knew we were going to get a comment like this. And it's a fair comment. Says, I'm just going to say that people who get really nerdy, geeky about things like equipment, that's their way of having fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm super nerdy and geeky about like, I mean, if you talk to me about people always walk in unsuspectingly and they're like, hey, man, you in a hockey pool? And I'm like, oh, buddy, (laughs) 25 years and running live drafts in Kelowna every year, you know, poker tournament with a silver bracelet, golf tournament with a green jacket, like keeper teams, farm teams. We are like over the top nerds over the top like we are 45 year old men this is so weird when i put it this way that know the names of all the best 15 year old hockey players in the country like that's how the the level is is almost concerning that's kind of creepy people that love me have said to me if you would have applied yourself in any other area like you apply yourself in fantasy in pretend hockey you would be a multimillionaire. so i i can hate no no, uh, you know, no disrespect to people that are nerds in anything. I think it's great. It's just not the vibe I was feeling on the dive boat that day. I needed a little sun on my face. I needed to be with the all right, all right, all right guy, if you know what I mean. Hoyles, you put this tweet on my radar, uh, which is absolutely phenomenal from Grant Horwood <laughs> yesterday. And you <laughs> sent it to me to your credit. You get to be the uh, like the hipster on this one. Like you sent this to me before it had thirty two hundred likes. Yeah. Yeah. Can I read it? Yeah, this is amazing. It, it, it's a bit of a novel, but yeah, go for it. It's a bit of a novel, but I think it's worth it. And we have a bit of time before we check in with, I'm looking forward to this, Dr. Lisa Young, a political scientist, and Elise Mills, a political strategist, on when does a professional become a shill? When is there a conflict of interest? You know what all of this is prompted by? Obviously, 
right? Dr. Joe Vipond, who's uh, leading some of these demonstrations in Calgary and Red Deer and Edmonton about the province, essentially, uh, you know, whatever word I use is going to be editorializing. I was going to say abandoning COVID restrictions. You could say moving on from COVID restrictions, dropping COVID restrictions, lowering, lowering, easing up on, you know, it's not pressing pause. It seems to me that every person I talk to in real life says there's no way they're, they're going back on this. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens. They're not going back. I say, we'll see. I hope not. I mean, I hope not. I hope it indicates that we're going to be okay, right? So Matt Wolf, who's basically Jason Kenny's, what is he? He's his executive director of issues management. He's his chief pit bull. He's his online attack dog. He's going after the doctor and saying, you donated to the NDP a bunch of times. You're a shill. So we ask Vipond about it. And he goes on the record and basically says in, in one sentence, uh, I'm a shill if they pay me, not if I donate. And welcome to democracy. Then CTV Calgary picks it up. People don't like how CTV Calgary covers it, uh, namely that they said, uh, you know, doctor criticized for this. And they didn't mention that the criticisms coming from Jason Kenny's guy. Right. Then people start to push back on CTV. CTV follows up with a report. I think it was yesterday or the day before about how now people are concerned at how the government and issues managers and press secretaries are conducting themselves like bullies, like trolls. A good point in that article and one I've seen discussed after people are saying, When's the last time or even look currently and presently try to name one issues manager or press secretary by name anywhere else in Canada? I mean, if you're a journalist, maybe you could. If this if you're in the business of politics, maybe you could. If you're a lobbyist, of course, you could. But the average person, no way. The average person that follows politics in Alberta could name five or six or ten of them. They're prominent. They're playing a different role under this premier than they have ever before. And so CTV now follows up with a story saying, well, now people are concerned about this. Then you've got Candace Malcolm, right, of of True North, uh, formerly a staffer to Danielle Smith, which is pretty funny because she's now writing, well, can we really trust the experts? Like maybe they are shills. Maybe, Maybe they are partisan affiliates. I mean, Candace herself, is Candace a shill? What qualifies someone as a shill? Right? Like Matt Wolf is literally a shill. If we're using the definition of you get paid by whomever to act in whomever's interest. Yeah. Like I, you know, I mean, you know, people would say to me, people say to me all the time, you're a sellout. And I'm like, literally, by definition, I am a sellout. It's not an insult. You know who our advertisers are. You know who our corporate sponsors are. There's a value in an endorsement. We only endorse products and services that we believe in. That's why an endorsement is valuable because there's a trust there. When we say I talk to you about a company and we appreciate their integrity and why we work with them, that that's we're putting our necks and our names out there, too, aren't we? So words like shill are supercharged. But Matt Wolf, you know, people are saying Matt Wolf donated three thousand dollars to the United Conservative Party. Yeah, because the United Conservative Party pays him like a quarter million dollars a year to do what he does. I would, too. Pay to play. It's it's an expected thing. So it's not unusual for people to make political donations. I happen to know there are advertisers on this show. I happen to know there are audience members on this show that donate to different political parties. Friends of mine donate to different political parties and vote for different political parties. It's pretty normal. If somebody donated to the United Conservative Party or the Federal Conservative Party, does it negate their opinions or their feelings on an issue, a political issue? And vice versa, if you donated to the Trudeau liberals or to Rachel Notley in the NDP, does it automatically make you a socialist or a Marxist or ineligible to comment on something that's important to you? I don't think so. 
So we're going to get into that with uh, Professor Young and Elise Mills. Looking forward to that conversation now in about 10 minutes. But let's get to Grant Horvitz. And this is going to be a little bit for, for some of our friends that are tuning in from other parts of Canada. Our numbers are bumping up a lot in Manitoba. Shout out and a good morning to Manitoba. It's so great to have you joining us. Brian Pallister, uh, as predicted on Real Talk. I love that. Resigning yesterday. He's yeah, walking David away. David Robertson came on our show was like, this guy ruining reconciliation. Yeah. Gotta go. In fact, he's going to go. And then boom. He called it. He called it. He said next time he steps in front of a microphone, it's going to be to announce his resignation. And then I love David yesterday tweeting. I called it on real talk. I was like, hell yeah, you did. <laughs> Just like Dr. Vipon was on the record first on real talk. That's right. People are waking up. Back to Grant Horwood's tweet. You people out there in follower land who don't live in Alberta, remember Supriya Duvetti was on, what was it, last Friday, I think? So, no, Monday. Last Tuesday. It after was the, long the holiday. Yeah, I'm getting after, all twisted Yeah, up. it was the Tuesday following the, the long weekend. Gosh, I love hanging out with her. She is no bullshit. <laughs> Supriya, I just love it. Calls it how she sees it. But she asked, hey, Jesperson, she says, I'm trying to understand Alberta. Can you help me out? The tweet went nuts. Grant's trying to help people, too. If you don't live in Alberta, you have absolutely no idea how deeply weird it has gotten here. He says, like, I'm putting that in my screenplay level weird. You think Portland's weird? There's a guy here with an $84 bucket of water and a piece of chalk yelling pepper spray doesn't stop syphilis. And people are going, you should run for mayor. Everybody in the province gets that joke. Everybody in the rest of the country is going, what in the absolute hell is wrong with you people? If you say having the best summer ever to someone, there's a 50-50 chance they'll hit you. And if you ask for a recommendation on a budget whiskey, the room goes silent or erupts in laughter. Again, 50-50. This is inside joke after inside joke when it comes to Alberta politics. The guy who runs the province, his nickname is Bumbles. That's the nickname his friends gave him. He went to war with a cartoon about Bigfoot and lost. He lives in a place called the Sky Palace. I am not making any of this up says Grant Horwood. Bumbles has a war room. It's some pasty white guys ooh, who collect government salaries to cyber bully teenagers and nurses. Bumbles best friend shot a horse. Bumbles likes trucks a lot, a disturbing amount. Bumbles wore a cowboy hat backwards for a photo op. I thought that was Stephen Harper. Did Jason Kenny also wear a cowboy hat backwards? I wasn't aware of that one. I was like, I got to look into that one. I think he actually misses the reference on that one, unless I'm wrong, in which case I will. Can you give me the Eat my words. Tomorrow, presented by Prairie Catering, we'll see. Grant goes on. Two days ago, just give up was trending in Canada. It was about Alberta. The woman in charge of schools here said six-year-olds should memorize English kings so they can grow up to sell used cars. The man responsible for the stat, and technically it was Angus McBeath that talked about the used cars. But I don't mean to be a fact checker, but it's nice to sprinkle these in. The man responsible for the status of woman, no, really, declares who is anointed by God. This is not a screenplay. This is all true. He says the most popular political personality in Alberta is a cat, and its name is Oregano. Oregano has been on Real Talk before. He says, again, I feel the need to stress I am not making this up. And then for those of you that are watching this on YouTube, Grant says, or if you're if you're streaming us right now or if you're listening on the podcast, you can just check him out at GB Horwood on Twitter. He says, remember the eighty four dollar bucket of water and chalk and syphilis pepper spray tweet from before? Here's a cartoon of the cat oregano with that bucket and that chalk. And I don't know how to explain that. If you live in Alberta, this makes sense. 
In Alberta, the plan is to teach kids how to program computers by having them write code on paper with a pen. They will grow up to be used car salesmen. The guy who runs this province probably cheated in the election. He's under investigation for it by the RCMP. He also wants to replace the RCMP with his own police force. This, of course, is a complete coincidence and concerns no one here at all. That by Grant Horwood. Not that far off, actually, from literal state of affairs. I feel sick. As I retweeted it out last night, I simply said, we laugh so we don't cry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There you go. Every Wednesday, it is our absolute honor to take a trip out to the mountains, so to speak, to break up the week with a trip to Jasper National Park. We call it My Jasper Memories. And it's presented by our very good friends at Tourism Jasper. This week, we're taking you out on the water. A big part of any Jasper getaway has got to be getting out on the water. And I know that we're going to get a whole bunch of paddling stories out of this, which I'm really excited about. Let me say right off the top, if you're going to send us videos, memories, photos on Instagram or Twitter, make sure you hashtag my Jasper and Real Talk RJ. We want to get into the secrets of the lake today. This is super cool. Beneath the crystalline waters of Patricia Lake lies a hidden piece of Jasper's history. During the Second World War, Patricia Lake was home to a covert construction project. So classified that even the builders didn't know what they were making. The goal was to build an aircraft carrier for the Allies out of wood, pulp, and ice. It was codenamed Project Habakkuk. And today, the wreck can be explored, the bones of it, by experienced divers. Mark my words, I will be out there. Or you can go to the Jasper Yellowhead Museum and Archives to learn the fascinating and little-known story behind this project, including its termination in 1943 when the project was deemed no longer necessary. The fully operational vessel was stripped of its reusable parts, and it was sunk to the lake floor. If you're looking for an amazing scenic gem to have a picnic to explore, Patricia Lake, as well as the nearby Pyramid Lake, are both incredible options. Pyramid Mountain looms nearby, and certain spots even have fire pits and beaches and tables that you can use. You can learn more about this. The team at Tourism Jasper does an amazing job at jasper.travel slash realtalk. You can also check out our past features from every week. And every week we love to feature an audience member's Jasper memory as well. And a big shout out today. Check this out. This is absolutely stunning. This tweet. And we received it again. So the hashtag my Jasper and real talk RJ. This is Catherine who says this is us canoeing on Pyramid Lake with me and my love before the pandemic. Look at this. They're on Pyramid Lake. Absolutely amazing experience the sun hitting her face like that look at the reflection in those aviators i can almost hear the water lapping up against the canoe can you an amazing my jasper memory thanks to those of you that send them in we look forward to seeing what you have for us this week so we'll talk in a few minutes about when a conflict of interest exists when it comes to to partisanship when it comes to affiliation things like and it's not let's be honest as well I mean, I can remember one of the very first guests on this show. She was here with us in the first week, uh, columnist Licia Corbella. Uh, and, and you could call her and she certainly wouldn't flinch. I think she would describe it as accurate. You could call her a conservative columnist. 
you remember in the last provincial election, it had come up that that Ms. Corbello was a was a, a card carrying member of the United Conservative Party. And a lot of people were saying that, you know, she shouldn't be publishing columns in the newspaper, shouldn't be writing columns if she's the member of a political party because she has a, 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 you know, a vested interest or partisan interest in that party's success. And I'm going to be curious to know where real talkers land on this one. Does it disqualify? I mean, there's a difference between being a journalist and being a columnist, right? In so many ways, as there's a difference between what a news anchor does and what I do. I'll roll my eyes and say what I think and throw a few hand grenades from time to time about issues that matter. You won't see a news anchor do that. People would say you've lost your objectivity in that circumstance. If you're a journalist covering a campaign or covering an election, it's different in my mind than if you're an opinion columnist. But if you're an opinion columnist, I think that you should disclose. I think if information is relevant, like you hold a party membership, it should be disclosed to your readership. How would you disclose it? Well, you, I think you disclose it in the column. I think you're just very clear about it. Do you think you write it in the body of the column or do you think that it goes like header or footer or? Yeah, I mean, and then that's and, and this, again, might be sort of inside baseball on yeah. how you do it. And I think you could do it in many different ways. I mean, I think that's why it's so important to have transparency, both in the column, wherever something is is published, but also just people being able to access the information around who donates to whom. So the fact that someone can call up and say, hey, yeah, Dr. Joe Vipond, he donated. That's good. That's good that we have that transparency. We can see that. That's what's important. Yeah. I do think it's relevant. Like, I, th- I think it's relevant if, if someone's a member of a political party or donates to a political party. I'm not sure how I feel about when it becomes the public's business. I mean, political donations are a matter of public record. You can search donor lists in some in some circumstances. You can search donors lists. We will note that, of course, many of you will be listening to the show later in the day on this Wednesday or perhaps in the days and weeks to come. We know a lot of you are enjoying summer vacations right now and you'll be catching up on this. So so some things develop as we're live putting this show out. And that includes these demonstrations across the province of Alberta right now. Um, information pickets, they're calling them in a ton of communities, Brooks, Calgary, Camrose, Drayton Valley, Edmonton, Fairview, Fort McMurray, Grand Prairie, High Level. He's going, is he going to read them all? Yep. High Prairie, Jasper, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, Red Deer, St. Paul, Stony Plains, Strathmore, Pinoca, Wainwright, and Whitecourt. Information pickets, they're calling it a day of action. And the finance minister, has uh, Travis Tavis, just now in a statement Uh, Quote, we must continue to find efficiencies across the public sector. It's an essential piece to restoring fiscal health and ensuring sustainable public services. You'll remember, what was it, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a few weeks ago, the finance minister floated a specific number. When you start talking about it might have to be a 3% cut. When you start throwing specific numbers out in public, it's interesting, right? When you talk to politicians and for that matter, labor representatives, union reps, A lot of times when you're curious to pick their brains on where negotiations are at, they'll often say, we're not going to negotiate in public. Typically, that's what happens. And for obvious reasons, makes the job way more difficult. We're not going to negotiate in public. I think it's just respectful. Right? I agree, too. So it's always remarkable. It's always interesting when all of a sudden a number is dropped in front of the public. I remember I was talking earlier. This was before you came on the show. This was like in the first few months type thing. And someone had asked, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but like, what would you do? What would you do with the nurses right now? And I said, you know, and keep in mind, this is mid pandemic, too. 
I said, well, if I mean, if I'm the finance minister and if I'm taking a look at the budget right now and projected revenues and the fiscal scenario, I said, I'm, I'm probably going to offer zero percent. And a couple of people got really pissed off, like zero percent after all nurses have done through the pandemic. It's like, hey, 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 first of all, no disrespect. And I don't think anybody. Well, I, I don't know if I deserve to say that, but let's say we are among the people who have who have indicated enormous respect for healthcare workers. The context of the question is, if you were the finance minister, what would you do? It's a tough job. And I think that zero percent, you would probably argue, is fair. We're in a tough spot right now. They would make the argument that we haven't had a raise in a long time. And this is BS. And what about cost of living? And what about all these other things? And they would have compelling arguments. And so these probably start with the province saying five percent cut. And they probably say six percent raise. And then the province maybe publicly says three percent cut. And then they come back and say, screw you guys, inflation, 2.5%. And then they go zero. And then both sign off. Who knows? Or perhaps the nurses say, we're not taking zero and we'll walk. And then the entire province can see what that looks like. So it's a hot button issue, especially once people start talking big numbers. Uh, We'll kick off with that in just a second with uh, Professor Lisa Young and Elise Mills. Right now, we wanted to remind you of a note that we received from our friends at Park Power. I really appreciated this. Uh, Chris, the founder of the company, is in touch with us, and he says it's no secret that everybody's getting their power bills right now, and they feel like a bit of a kick in the teeth. Like people have been running fans and air conditioners, and he said, keep in mind there are different ways that you can structure your electricity agreement with Park Power. He says, we're currently offering flexible fixed rates for electricity on one and three year terms, so you can get your peace of mind, but you're never locked in. You can switch rates, you can cancel anytime. You're in the driver's seat at parkpower.ca, internet, electricity, and natural gas. If you sign up, make sure you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. That gets you $70 off your first bill. They'll essentially buy you dinner for coming and bringing your business over to Park Power. It's easy. It takes just a few minutes on the website. The team at Local Waste, they're getting excited. I know just like we are for a couple of days from now, trash talk coming up. It's always a highlight of the week. You can send us your rants. The shorter, the better, by the way, to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Local waste has been in the garbage and recycling management game for a quarter century. They love doing garbage math. What's that? They say often you get in these contracts, they hear from their customers or potential customers, partners all the time. They say these these massive, complicated, liquidated damages costs when people try to break a waste contract. He says, like, there are better ways to do it. Mikkel, the CEO over there, says, we love helping people get out of bad contracts. They will fight for your business at no cost to you. You can learn more at localwaste.ca. All right, let's talk politics. We're going to jump right into this. When does somebody cross the line? When do you officially become a shill? What does it take? What does the public deserve to know? When do conflicts of interest arise and how should we respond with regards to processing opinions, reporting and public action? Elise Mills is senior counsel with Sussex Strategy. She's got more than 15 years of experience providing strategic counsel, a recognized regular commentator with local and national news organizations. And you've probably seen her as an analyst on Canada's top public affairs shows. Dr. Lisa Young is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Uh, Her research includes studies on election finance and money in politics. So we've got a couple of heavy hitters with us this morning. Uh, Lisa, Elise, welcome to the show. It's great to have you both here. 
Elise, we'll work on your audio. It sounds, Sam, do we have a pretty clear connection? I just want to make sure we'll be able to hear everything she says. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Young? When does a conflict of interest arise? You know the background to this story. Dr. Joe Vipond, a physician and an activist out of Calgary, being criticized by the premier's staff for making donations to the NDP. They essentially say that, you know, he's a shill. What's your thought? Well, you know, I think the first thing is that we shouldn't use the term conflict of interest, right? Because that's usually used when you're talking about somebody benefiting personally, right? So you might say that it's a conflict of interest to be you know, making an argument if you are in some way going to benefit monetarily or with career success because you made it, right? So I think the criticism that's being made here maybe is that that Dr. Vipond is shouldn't be seen as an impartial expert, but rather as a partisan surrogate, right? And we know that there are partisan surrogates who, you know, appear on lots of the political talk shows and and they go in armed with partisan talking points. And so, you know, I think the, the idea here that by virtue of having given some money to a party, you're necessarily a partisan surrogate is actually pretty problematic. Um, you know, I don't think there's there's much to that. Elise, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I think uh, the way that the Canadian political system, actually North American system is set up right now is that we're in perpetual campaign mode. Uh, it's hard, I think, for anyone that wants to involve themselves in, in a meaningful way uh, and, and sort of play the long road of building out important pieces of policy or participate in an ethical and moral level in the sense of... Elise, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm so, so, I'm so sorry to cut you off. I'm just, we're, we're getting really bad audio from you. So Sam's going to work with you behind the scenes to improve it. My apologies to interrupt you. And I definitely want to come back to you as soon as possible. Lisa, it means that you and I get to hang out for a little while just the two of us so so why don't we okay. follow up on that this was you know we had an opportunity to talk to to joe fight bond himself and i'll play you a clip of that in just a minute but he said hey i make a political donation that's part of the democratic process people do that all the time he's not wrong uh, absolutely and you know we actually think about people giving relatively small donations to candidates and political parties as being a good thing for democracy. We know that parties need money in order to contest elections. If they don't have money, they can't you know, pay for ways to communicate with voters. So you've got to have money in politics. Where should it come from? And for a long time in, in Canada, the source of money was corporations and unions for the most part. And over decades, we've changed the rules to move away from that and instead to say, no, we think that it's voters who should be giving money to parties. And in fact, you know, at the federal level and in most Canadian provinces, we're so committed to that idea that we want people to give small contributions to parties and candidates that you get a tax credit when you do that, that covers a lot of the cost of the first couple of hundred dollars of a donation. So, there's there's nothing inherently bad about giving a, a, a money to a party or a candidate. This is uh, we were just before before you joined us, Professor. It 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 one of the interesting elements of this is that a lot of the people, um, including opinion columnists, that are commenting on this. Um, th- there's no way to avoid the fact that they themselves have a vested interest in the political process and in the success of certain parties. There are political columnists that hold party memberships. There are political columnists that are recognized for either being adversarial or supportive 
of a provincial or federal government. Is that problematic for you? Does the, is the general public, and I don't mean this as an insult to the general public, but like, does the general public differentiate enough between journalists and columnists? You know, I, I think we've got a ways to go, especially, you know, because the media environment is changing so remarkably, right? Um, it used to be when I first started teaching, you know, 25 years ago, I could say to students, you know, when you open up the newspaper, there, there's a couple of pages that are the opinion pages. And you should expect that to be people's opinions, whether it's columnists or, you know, people writing in, uh, you know, doing their own op-eds and so on, or the editorial board, that's opinion, but you'll find facts reported in the rest of the newspaper. Now, because the media environment has changed so much, um, you know, it's it's a little bit harder to make that, to draw that distinction. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's not, we expect columnists, you know, and people writing opinion pieces to have opinions to come from a, a particular place. If we start to suspect that they're just taking the talking points from a party, then really, what are they contributing? At a certain point, you really do want them to disclose those kinds of connections. Are you comfortable with the structure right now of, of political donations? With I mean, there are limits on on how much an individual can contribute. There are, there are uh, limits, and in some cases, non-starters uh, with regards to how parties or even how legislation approaches things like union or corporate donations. Uh, what's your? I mean, I totally one hundred percent agree with you. It is impossible to remove money and, for that matter, influence from politics. Uh, it's all. You know, I mean, it's kind of the same thing if if we're being honest here. But but what's your assessment of how that's all structured? You know, there is no perfect system. That's the first thing I'm going to say. I think, you know, any source of money in politics has issues that are associated with it. Um, you know, when it was corporations and unions, there was, a, you know, a worry that there was, you know, in undue influence on government. Um, so we've moved toward individual contributions. There's a lot to be said for that. But even there, we can sometimes see, you know, the, the idea of the party base pulling parties in in a certain direction, you know, that that may be making parties a little more extreme on some issues. But, you know, given the alternatives, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, the way that we've structured this uh, in in Canadian provinces and nationally. That's uh, Professor Lisa Young, also joined by Elise Mills. We think we have you back, which is super exciting, Elise, because I want to get your take on on this. We were I, I asked the professor uh, if, if she believes that the general public is is able to discern or if there is enough, maybe disclosure, identifying or clarifying a difference between a journalist and a columnist. And I'm, I'm curious to know what you make of that with regards to what people are reading and how people are influenced with what they read and hear. I think we may have dropped. Uh, Lisa's dropped out. <laughs> Lisa. Hey, Lisa, you know what? I'm going to make the call. You and I are going to hang out today. All right. So this just okay. we're just gonna, we're going to keep the spotlight on you this morning. And I'll let our audience know uh, we were excited. Elisa's making her debut here on the show. So we're looking forward to that. And we'll, we'll get her back in a show to come, which is totally fine. So so Lisa, this all I mean, it comes down to the fact right now where I think what we're seeing is people attempting to discredit others. Right. I mean, that's that that's essentially what this is, is efforts to discredit. Yeah. And, you know, and it happens on both sides. I think it's a, a symptom of our really polarized political situation here in Alberta. Right. Um, you, you see these kinds of, you know, accusations thrown in, in both directions. And, you know, what I would say to people who are paying attention to this is that we all need to be, you know, critical thinkers when we 
hear these kinds of claims. So when somebody, you know, gets up to to say something about an important public policy issue, we should ask ourselves a whole series of questions. You know, does this person have relevant information or expertise that they're bringing to to this particular issue? Um, does does this person have something to benefit? Right? Do they, you know, do they have a stake in this? Is there a conflict of interest? Um, you know, are they you know, perhaps ask, uh, acting as, as a partisan surrogate? Is there reason to think about that? And you, you ask yourself these questions and then you evaluate, you know, the, the, the person who's speaking and the claims they're making, but you need to think about those things on both sides of the aisle, you know? And uh, I, I think in this instance, you know, Dr. Vipon has relevant expertise uh, that makes me listen to him, right? Mm-hmm. He has the front lines in the emergency room you know does he have partisan ties yeah but there's no evidence that he's taking orders or talking points from the provincial ndp so you know uh, my critical assessment is that i'm i'm willing to listen to what he has to say and take it pretty seriously yeah you know i feel i feel like uh and again this is like maybe i'm dumbing this down but a lot of times real life can also be pretty simple and I, I, you know, I think it's relevant that I've pointed out that we have, um, you know, sponsors on this show that have, you know, supported certain political parties. I've got friends that have supported different political parties. I've got friends that speak openly about how they vote and who they vote for and, and others keep their you know cards close to their chest. I'm sure some of our friends even lie to us about who they support and who they vote for. And that's part of the fun, isn't it, Lisa? It's part of the sp- <laughs> it's part of the sparring, right? <laughs> But that doesn't mean to me that doesn't mean to me if I if I have a friend who's a, a lab researcher that that happened to vote for, you know, the federal liberals or if I have a friend who's a police officer that voted for the federal conservatives or whatever, I could provide 100 examples that does not, in my mind, negate their firsthand experience, their on the ground experience based on their professional expertise. And quite frankly, the way that they vote or who they support may be dictated by what they see and the policy they'd like to see changed or the, the policy or funding they see that's effective. And to me, that speaks volumes. Now, it may be inconvenient for politicians who find themselves in the crosshairs. Right. But but I think it's an interesting exercise to, to try to determine. And I don't think that you're coming in here painting in black and white. There are shades of gray all over the place here. Uh, but 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 I don't think that someone's partisan affiliation negates their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it goes in both directions. And I do think, you know, we have to be really careful here if we're going to say that anyone who's ever given money to a political party can't speak out on a policy issue without being painted as partisan. Because if you start doing that, you know, it, it will come right back at you, um, you know, and, and do we really want to, you know, live in a political system where, you know, we're discrediting people because they've given, uh, you know, a, a relatively small sum of money. Uh, you know, certainly Dr. Vipon has given a fair bit over the years, but, um, you know, it, it's it's not tens of thousands of dollars. Um, you know, do we really want to be in that kind of a, uh, a political system? And again, you know, I'm going to talk about the polarization that we've, we've got in Alberta. And I, I really worry that this is part of us you know, maturing into the kind of democracy where we're accustomed to, you know, government changing from time to time, right? Um, I think part of the critique is almost a critique that, you know, if you're part of this opposition party that governed once, that, that it's an illegitimate 
perspective. And, and I don't think we want that, you know, in the Westminster political system, we talk about the loyal opposition. We talk about how important it is to have a political party that opposes government, that offers a different perspective, that can criticize policy so that we can try and end up with better policy in the end. Um, you know, and, and that's how democracy works. And, and we don't have experience with that in some ways politically uh, in the province. And so, you know, maybe this is part of coming to terms with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, how language just and and partisanship and and just a warning ahead of time, doctor. I'm not about to say anything profound, uh, but how it gets so weaponized to the point where if you indicate a concern about something or push back on something or propose an alternative policy to something, you're you're an enemy of the province. Right. Or, or, or you're, you're, you're all of a sudden affiliated with the federal government. You must be or you're willing to attack, you know, your province's best interests type of thing. And it gets so supercharged and so loaded that if you walk a step out of line and it's not I don't know. There's a follow up question here. I want to ask you if it's always been this way and maybe I just didn't notice, but I don't think it has been. There's this thing where if you step out of line that you're for the, you're on the other team. If you step out of line one little bit, there's no room for discussion, debate. There's no room for pushing good leadership. There's no room for working out policy. The whole thing about a big tent in my mind it is not a thing, does not exist. Has it always been this way? Did I just not notice? You know, one thing I'd say about sort of the political culture of Alberta and, you know, I I moved here 24 years ago, and uh, one thing that struck me right away was that there's a, a, a discomfort with with dissent, right? That we it, we're all safer if we're all agreeing on something, and you know, and and that played out, I think, in many ways in having you know single party government for a long time. The PCs governed for decades, and you know, there was sort of a sense that you know that that somehow kept us safe because we weren't disagreeing with one another. We, we, you know, there was a unity to that. Um, and so I think the election of the NDP in 2015 kind of disrupted that in, in some ways. And now we're trying to come to terms with uh, almost a discomfort with dissent in, in some ways. And it does play out in uh, right now, some very toxic ways. Um, you know, I've, I've certainly noticed, you know, the, the voicemails that I get uh, after I, I say, things that might be critical of the provincial government, you know, I, I get voicemails from, from people who, who say, well, you're not from here. And, you know, and, and so that's a, another way of delegitimizing voices, right? That you have to be born in Alberta to, to have a critical voice, or you have to be part of, you know, some consensus. And, you know, I think Alberta will be a better place when we learn to agree to disagree about some things. Yeah. There's a... We're a complicated beast here. We really are. <laughs> Although, you know what? Maybe I've only, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived in other provinces, sure, but uh, in Ontario and BC specifically, but I, but I, you know, I'm sort of a, and here I go, let me perpetuate it for you, a born and raised Alberta boy. Uh, but, but I say that in, in a way that is also very welcoming. I mean, I, I look at some of people who I recognize as incredible Albertans. One of them, you know, moved here with his family from Somalia within the last 15 years, one of the greatest Albertans I know. So, I mean, it has nothing to do with any of that, but, but that's my, 
my frame of reference, right? My frame of reference, you know, I grew up, Ralph Klein was my mayor. You know, I, I grew up in, you know, in, in Southeast Calgary, you know, hanging out with Preston Manning's kids. I mean, like these are, these are my frames of reference. So it forms my opinion about this. But Alberta now, I mean, I, I saw, you know, a, a shout out to uh, to Todd Hirsch, the chief economist at ATB Financial. I saw him yesterday talking about I wish I could find it, but I don't have it on the fly. Lee, somebody he's talking about, he says this IPCC report, this climate report it says appears to be so threatening and so shocking. I'm paraphrasing uh, such a threat to the old Alberta, he said, but to the new Alberta, it signals an opportunity for success and for wealth creation and for all these types of things. And and that's the Alberta that, that, that the story that I find compelling is that people come here from all over the world because there's a wealth of natural resources. There's a wealth of human resources. And and there is that kind of it sounds cheesy. It sounds like I'm working for Travel Alberta right now, but there's kind of that can do attitude. It's a little bit of a of a renegade kind of a, you know, there is that. And and I think that that's a positive if properly channeled. And, the, and then I think that there's also some embarrassing stereotypes that are being perpetuated right now. And I wonder what the rest of Canada thinks, quite frankly, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, so do I. <laughs> yeah. Lisa, you mentioned these voicemails that you get. Um, CTV put out a story, uh, I think it was yesterday, and they quoted one of your colleagues uh, at the University of Calgary, Professor Melanie Thomas, who's been on this show. Great uh, voice and, and a respected professional and academic. Um, they, they quoted several people, uh, Professor Lindsay Ted's The Economist as well. And they, they implied or clearly stated that if they're not threatened, it's been suggested to them that they should basically muzzle themselves. Um, I speak from firsthand experience that I know that this provincial government can be hostile and active in managing employment scenarios. I was fired, uh, quite frankly, from a radio job because of an adversarial relationship with the current premier. So I, I've walked a mile in these boots. Um, I'm curious for your insight on that. I mean, you say you get these voicemails. How do you wrap your mind around it? Have you ever seen anything or experienced this before? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I'm deeply concerned about the things that that, that you know Melanie Thomas and and Lindsay Ted's are are reporting the the kinds of pressure that they they feel that you know is being put on them and and I you know I have huge respect for both of them so I you know I, I don't question that that's the case I haven't experienced anything quite like that but I'm not necessarily as outspoken on on you know touchy issues. Um, you know, and I think one of the things that we've seen is, uh, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, um, a, an attempt to discredit Melanie Thomas because she ran once for the NDP, you know, when she was a student. So, you know, the notion that she could never say anything again. So that takes us back to this sort of question of partisanship, right? Um, but I, I, you know, this is a real worry because, you know, Functioning democracies want to have academics that are free to criticize and, and throw out new ideas and, and not to feel constrained or threatened. And if we're in a situation where the provincial government is, is trying to exert any kind of, of influence over what academics say about public policy, then, you know, we're, we're losing important voices in our democracy. And it, you know, again, it, it goes both ways. If, if, you know, if we had an NDP government that was trying to criticize or, or um, you know, muzzle uh, conservative academics, I would be just as much opposed to that. It, academic freedom, you know, it's it's important to us, but it's important to the society as well um, that you have 
you know, people, thoughtful people who can make these arguments. You don't need to agree with them, but let them make the arguments. Did you happen to have a chance to to read this open letter that was signed off on? I mean, just like a couple of dozen people have signed this, the letter to the prime minister, an urgent appeal for direct Alberta school board funding to mitigate the risks of the Delta variant. You're chuckling and so am I. But what's not a joke are the names on this list. Uh, there's some pretty big names here. But w- why are you laughing? Well, okay, uh, I'm laughing because one of the things I teach is federalism. And uh, so (laughs) like there's no way there's no way. And, you know, it's really interesting because my first thought was exactly that. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, can we pull out the Constitution and talk about, you know, responsibility and so on? Um, and, And then I thought about it a little bit more. And. You know, the federal government has actually, the federal government has what's called the spending power, right? So it can spend in areas of provincial jurisdiction. And it's been pretty deferential on education. So when we saw money go, uh, you know, to to deal with the COVID issues last fall, it went through the provincial governments. But I think there's a sense that maybe it didn't end up where it was supposed to be. But we do see the federal government, you know, spending a fair bit of time working with municipalities, providing funding directly to them for things like the Green Line. So it isn't technically impossible, but I do think it would set off just a firestorm in the country if the federal government started dealing directly with school boards, because it is it would be seen as a a pretty major incursion into uh, man an area of exclusive provincial jurisdiction. Yeah. Like you, I mean, I don't even want to, I don't even want, I I just feel like everything right now, I we're surrounded by Jerry cans and somebody's light (laughs) and somebody's threatening to light a cigarette. And I'm just kind of going, eh, like maybe not now. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, you've got the federal health minister commenting on Alberta's management of provincial health. You've got Alberta's provincial health minister firing back and, and Tyler Shander, I will say not wrong in what he's going on about. I mean, I don't blame him for pushing back. He's like right before a campaign, she's interfering and and he's right about that. Um, Most people I've talked to about it said, yeah, he's he's right. And that is exactly what's going on. It's not going to change that from going on. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think if they were if the federal government were to wade into education right now, although you never know, right, Lisa, because they might be sitting here going 2015, we won four seats in Alberta. Let's try to win six. Yeah. And, you know, we're in this absolutely weird moment, right? We, we've been through such a peculiar time with 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 covid. Everything politically is, is sort of in flux. Some of the old rules maybe don't apply. Um, So, you know, I I honestly can't believe that we had a federal health minister send a letter uh, to a provincial health minister with the tone that um, that that letter had. Um, You know, that is actually pretty far outside the boundary of what's what's considered normal or acceptable in Canadian politics or Canadian federalism. So, you know, anything is possible. Um, But, you know, the the thing to remember is much as I think the Trudeau government might very well like to do this just to, you know, I I call this thumb in the eye federalism, you know, just to provoke the the provincial government here. 
but they would hear from not just our provincial government, but the other nine provincial governments as well, because it sets a, I would think, dangerous precedent of the federal government trying to interfere in in K to twelve education, and I don't think any provincial premier would be happy about that. Yeah, I totally agree with you, hundred uh, percent. Let me ask you in closing. I, I mentioned the four seats that were won: two in Calgary, two in Edmonton in twenty fifteen. It was disappointing for the federal liberals in twenty nineteen um, to 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 essentially lose that ground that they had gained and get shut out. I don't think I'm going to go bold here and I'll go on the record just for fun. This is actually my first. They haven't even called the election yet, but this will be my first on the. It's with you, doctor. My first federal election prediction. I think that uh, Edmonton, you know, I guess former city councilor. What are we going to call him? Ben Henderson um, running in in South Edmonton. I don't think he's going to win against Tim Upple if that's who ends up going head to head. And I don't think that Randy Boissano is going to get his seat back. I don't think he's going to beat James Cumming in Edmonton Center, which is my riding. So I, I see the liberals getting shut out of Edmonton. I, I don't know much about this George Chahal, Chahal, Chahal out of Calgary, but Chahal. I, yeah. Chahal, I perceive him to be from what people are some people I trust. They're telling me that he seems to be a formidable candidate. You think the liberals could win a seat or two in Calgary? I think it's possible, um, you know, and, and I think the the seat that is actually the most likely to change hands would be uh, Chahal in, in Calgary Skyview. Um, he's got lots of credibility from his time on, on city council. Um, it, it seems like he's got a, you know, a, a really sound campaign with good roots uh, in the, the electoral district. So that one is certainly possible. Um, <sighs> You know, but who knows? And and a lot of this is, you know, what kind of swings we see in the vote across the the province and, and nationally. And, you know, quite frankly, the polls right now are so bizarre. Yeah. I think making predictions at this point is a really dangerous game. I totally agree with you. Uh, but it, the good news is, is it wouldn't be the first time that I'd been wrong. So I throw it out there. I will remind everybody that even if Bodog does provide uh, odds on this, you should never wager on my political predictions. That would be a fool's. That would be a fool's errand. So just don't do it. But yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting to see there. I mean, I you, you referenced this kind of bizarro polling, and I don't have any of it in front of me. And sometimes you really do. I mean, you're obviously an authority on this. You've this is kind of what we're talking about: uh, the public trust and perception and conflicts of interest. I mean, a lot of the polling we see released. I mean, we're seeing polling released by mayoral candidates in Edmonton right now. They're like, this is our internal polling. It's like, uh-huh. Uh, and then, you know, we see polling that suggests that the the conservatives, the federal conservatives have lost double digits, like significant double digit support in the province. It's showing a surge of support for the federal NDP in Alberta. I apologize. I mean to be as objective as possible. I just cannot see that. I'm sorry. I can't believe it. <laughs> And, and I think there's lots of people, myself included, that are right there with you. You sort of look at that, you scratch your head and you think, yeah, you know, every now and then there are what's called rogue polls. It might be that. It could also be, you know, I do think there's sort of a sense that, you know, right now, you know, people are, are, are agitated about provincial politics in Alberta. There's a lot going on. I don't know that people have really settled in to think about the federal election 
as as its own thing. And so I think the campaign will matter here. Uh, I would be surprised if we saw a result in Alberta that looked like that one poll that we're both referencing. Yeah. Dr. Lisa Young is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary's School of uh, Public Policy. I was really excited to get you back on the show. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. (laughs) Love it. Lisa does such a good job of just she like says it, but she's also you, you can perceive her as a, a really moderate, objective voice. Right. And, like, and makes things very accessible. Um, doesn't talk down. She made the note there, though. She says, yeah, I'm, she says, I haven't had the same experience, for example, as Dr. Thomas or, yeah. or, or Dr. Ted's and what, what they talked about. And, you know, she said, but also I'm not quite as outspoken. But she, when she shows up here, she sure doesn't mince words. I mean, she sort of says what she thinks. I can't buy. I, I don't mean sort any, of. I, I, well, I don't mean any disrespect. I had the federal NDP candidate, as a matter of fact, knock on our door the other day, all masked up and everything at the bottom of the stairs. And, and she, you know, we had a good exchange and uh, she was like, you've seen that polling and you've seen the polling that shows that federal NDP way up in Alberta. And I was like, I quite like her as a person, mm. you know, but I was I was just like, sure have like no disrespect intended. But I just I would have to see it to believe it. And I know some people will take this as an insult. I, I mean, no offense. I just can't imagine it. But you never know, right? Like we, we have the, the only federal NDP member of parliament is out of Edmonton. Yeah. Right. So so there is an, and, and Linda Duncan for many years before that. So so there Edmonton has sent a federal NDP MP. I just don't like when they're talking about this huge. The numbers they're talking about would indicate that they could send two or three or four MPs to Ottawa. I mean, that would blow my mind if they did. But it might be. You never know. I mean, but I think to the to the the professor's point, the idea that there is a shift happening, and that's that's what this pushback and trying to dig up dirt and to show that someone has a conflict of interest or imply that there's a conflict of interest. It's about there being a shift. That to me was like the the big moment in in that conversation is yeah. right. This is in, this is, in, this is showing us that there's a shift happening. We'll have to get Heather McPherson on the show to talk about life on the orange Island as the only NDP member of parliament in the province. I'll look forward to that uh, conversation. Of course, out of Edmonton, Strathcona, we are going to absolutely change gears in a moment. Do not let me wrap the show without reading this email from Stephanie about that police TikTok video yesterday, because we, we, we opened out of the gates yesterday about that. Right. A lot of people have talked about it. The Edmonton Police Service, I saw, pulled down the TikTok video. They said uh, they came out with I felt hey, listen, I, I on this one, everyone's got their very strong opinions on this video. Some real talkers think it's just for fun. Other real talkers are like it is misogynist and sexist and brutal and violent and talks about drunk driving and all these types. Of, and the police responded. But when I saw their tweet yesterday and the it was response like, tweet, the, the response tweet was like, some people, many people felt it promoted outdated gender norms, violence and intimidation. And and all the responses, people like many people felt that's like that's the I'm sorry if you were offended apology. So it's the non-apology. Any, any, well, any crisis communicator will tell you never apologize if somebody was offended. Apologize that you offended. Apologize that you were offensive apologize right 
Now, it prompted Stephanie, you and I didn't 100% see eye to eye yesterday on it. One thing no. I think we saw eye to eye on, though, was that we thought it was weird and inappropriate and wouldn't have done it. That was where we saw eye to eye on it. Um, Stephanie has a great take on that, and we'll get to that, I promise, a little bit later on in the show. In just a second, we're going to talk to like a major player when it, when it comes to astrology thousands nay tens of thousands of people look to alice sparkly cat we're going to find out why millennials why there's this resurgence of interest into astrology in just a second but first i want to remind you that if you're checking your horoscope on the daily there's no better platform or bit of hardware to hold in your hand as you check your horoscope than the iphone 12 hoyles i tried my best on that one (laughs) And you'll find a great selection of iPhone 12s at Westworld Computers via westworld.ca. They've also got the AirTag. Have you heard about the AirTag? It's the easiest way to find your things. You're always looking for your wallet, always looking for your keys. The AirTag. You can buy it now online at westworld.ca. They'll ship anywhere. Plus, you can learn more about Apple TV, the 4K Apple experience on the big screen, the iPad Pro, the iMac, and everything else you might need. Westworld.ca and business. Family owned for more than 40 years. What a remarkable family business. Same deal with Eden Landscaping. Also family owned for more than two decades. They've been bringing outdoor spaces to life. If you go to landscapeedmonton.ca, You can browse the services that they provide, whatever your vision. They will execute it with precise attention to detail. Full service landscaping from excavation all the way through to the finished project. They've got great relationships with skilled trades. uh, And that means that you're never going to be sitting there waiting for three months with your backyard all torn up for the job to be done. They take pride in it. Customer satisfaction is their legacy. Just ask Mike with Eden Landscaping at Landscape edmonton.ca also wanted to remind you that the new jeep cherokee unbelievable i mean the the big company has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into developing this next gen grand cherokee it means there's a whole bunch of 2021s that need to go off the lots at sherwood and st albert dodge including beautifully equipped grand cherokee laredos they take a bunch of boxes for under forty-seven thousand dollars. maybe it's time to upgrade your family's SUV with the brand that's been trusted since 1941. Talk to your Jeep specialist at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep today. Well, the numbers demonstrate that millennials are into astrology. We've been polling unscientifically this morning to find out where real talkers are at with an unscientific poll, of course, an unofficial one via my Twitter at Ryan Jesperson. About 450 of you have voted. We asked you how you feel about horoscopes. And I'm sure that our next guest is going to tell me that it's about more than just horoscopes. But the audience responding right now, about 450 of you, 56 percent say, come on, no way. About 40%, 39 say, sure, yeah, they can be fun. And 5%, the numbers bumped up by a couple of points, say, absolutely, I buy in 100%. Alice Sparkly Cat is an astrologer. Their work has been featured at the Museum of Modern Art at MoMA, at Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Museum. They're the author of Postcolonial Astrology, brand new, published in May of this year by Penguin Random House Welcome to Real Talk. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. 
Oh, thanks for having me. It's so good to meet. I did that poll. I selected the sure they can be fun option. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. I like that we're starting off on this foot. You can see that the producer of the show is very impressed as well. So, Alice, you and I, I've not voted on my own poll, but I don't think you can. Can you? You and I would have voted for the same. Sure, they can be fun. Well, but But you're not dictating every one of your life's decisions by your horoscope? Oh, I no, no. Yeah, because horoscopes like, you know, how they exist now, they're really different from how they've existed in the past. Like horoscopes, it's a really new type of astrology that's being done. Uh, they kind of started with the feminist zine culture of the 80s. They uh, branched out into like, you know, wider magazine culture. But the horoscopes that are being done now, I mean, a lot of poets write them, a lot of artists write them. So it's something that's like, it's not very prescriptive. Like you can't really base your life off a horoscope. So how did you, first of all, you're probably going to, and, and I, I know that I know this is coming in, and let me just say full disclosure, I'm absolutely so interested in this, but I'm going to have a lot of really entry level questions uh, but when we talk about astrology we're talking about way more than just horoscopes right what does it mean sure. to you it has a lot of different meanings like there's a lot of different subcultures within the wider subculture of astrology i think because uh, there's astrologers who don't write horoscopes there's astrologers who only write horoscopes uh there's client work there's astrologers who do client work there's astrologers who don't do client work they research the history of astrology things like that uh, so it means a lot of different things a lot it means a lot of different types of groups of people too why is it that you think that millennials are so into it i mean you're you're uh obviously you've got a pretty significant following on twitter you've got a, a big following on instagram are you on tiktok i'm not on tiktok you're on tiktok I'm not on TikTok because I don't want to, yeah, like, you know, waste so much time. Like, I'm very greedy with my time. <laughs> okay. I find people, people always say to me, like, people of my vintage, like, if you're a 70s or 80s born, I see people saying we're too old for TikTok. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. But you've got tens of thousands of, of people that follow you, and a lot of them are obviously younger people. What do you think it is about this generation, so to speak, that they're so into it? Well, I don't. I'm not really sure because I get like, you know, there's all types of people uh, who are into astrology. I had someone write me the other day who are like, it's, you know, it's not just millennials and Gen Z who are into this stuff. Like Gen X, we're here too. There's a lot of boomers who are into astrology. So it's been around for a long time, but around 2017, there was this kind of big uh, like revival of astrology, particularly with queer people. Uh, and so, you know, that's why astrology looks so different today than it has been for very long, but it be kind of became part of queer culture. And again, like uh, in past decades, it was very much a part of feminist culture. So it kind of, I think, inherited from that. Did you have an insight into why that might be? Why it's sort of woven itself into queer culture? I think that people like having a language that they can use and remix and just kind of reappropriate to talk about the relationships uh, about their emotions that they're going through. Uh, people make astrology memes, things like that. Uh, and the thing with astrology is that it's very much like a fandom. Um, so what I mean by that is that people get into astrology uh, from people that they're in love with, like people uh, that, you know, they get into it from their friends. They're not looking at astrology ads from the astrology company and like getting into it that way. So it's, I mean, it's part of just how people relate to each other. I think. 
We're getting interesting comments here in our live chat. Arnold says uh, he, he identifies. He says millennial here. Um, he says, I think that astrology is absolute nonsense, but it's fun. He says, maybe it's because our lives can suck and we feel that we have no control over our futures and the idea of predestination can be appealing. Do you have any insight into that? I think that a lot of people get into astrology during times of crisis, but I think that there's an assumption that astrology is going to offer you answers, but then people who are in crisis, they're not necessarily looking for answers. Uh, They're looking for ways to talk about what they're experiencing, and they're looking for language that they can take over and use in order to find their own answers. And then, so, like, I think that's what astrology is really good at, uh, and like part of it, it is because it's a magical language. So it's pseudoscience. It's something that it's, you know, it's not like you're going to astrology looking for a diagnosis of what you're going through or anything like that. Uh, it's pleasurable. You're having pleasure with making meaning of the world. Yeah, we're getting some really, really interesting comments here, like from Adventure Cycling, who says the planets have a huge energy pull on us. And boy, do I feel it. Can you can you boil down astrology to, to human beings trying to process their relationship with the planets? I mean, is that essentially what it is? I think it's not really about the planets because, again, it's, you know, it's about these archetypes. It's about these planet symbols, which they reference objects in the solar system. Sure. But it's about uh, it's it's about ways of keeping track of time. So it's about looking at history. Like you have astrologers who are historians. They look at historical moments and they try to make sense of them using astrology. Uh, It's about looking at like what types of futures are available uh, and most importantly, it's about your present too. Uh, so it's really like, I mean, astrology, if you look at a chart, it's about a snapshot of time. And then you're always looking at the chart as something that's in motion too. So astrology is a lot about processing time. It's not so much about uh, the physical objects of the planets. It's more about the mythological meanings of the planets. We had a we had a funny comment here and I'm trying to call it up. I want to find it. It was Michaela McQuaid. I remember because her name is so fun to say. Um, and she she chimed in on our unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll. Here it is. Uh, she, she didn't perceive there to be enough options on the poll. She says, I need option four. How else would I navigate the astral plane when Mercury is in retrograde or is retrograde, which. I laugh because it's fun to say I have no idea really what it means, but there is that sort of recurring theme, isn't there? When there are things, different planetary positions or or phases or stages that they have some impact on the human condition in a sense. That yeah, that you're uh, impacted by time, by different cycles, different patterns. Yeah, Mercury retrogrades a lot, so it's just part of the Mercury cycle, uh, you know, in terms of solar phase too. Can you can you explain it? Can you like just act like I absolutely know zero about this because that's the truth and kind of explain it to me like what people pick up on and, and how significant that is to some people? I mean, I would say the majority of society. Is it fair to say it would have no idea what's going on in that circumstance? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So Mercury's retrograde cycle, it's about its apparent motion as being seen on Earth. And then Mercury uh, in, in Venus, there's sometimes evening stars and then there's sometimes morning stars. So basically all the retrograde motions doing is it's when the planet is turning from an uh, being an evening star into a morning star. That's all. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, like, you know, when you're thinking about Mercury retrograde, uh, not all Mercury retrogrades really affect your chart. You're looking at, I mean, aspects. You're also looking at uh, your chart. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of techniques for figuring out which retrogrades like really specifically impact you and how. Uh, and then that's that's where the storytelling happens. That's where you're actually deciding what you want to get out of a Mercury retrograde. And you're trying to figure out how you you want to use the time to narrate your life process. Interesting. How did how did this all get on your radar? Were, were, were you raised with this around you or was there this moment? No, I got into astrology around 2015. Uh-huh. So that was actually like a little bit before it got really popular. That's when all the used bookstores still had full astrology. Uh, bookshelves because people are giving out the book, giving the books away. Uh, now they're all empty because it's gotten more popular, but now there's more books being published about astrology too. So it's definitely shifted in terms of that. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, I was learning a lot about Chinese astrology. It's a totally different system. So that's why uh, I feel like Western astrology, like there's nothing universal about it. Uh, it's, it's a way of narration and it serves a really specific purpose. You, uh, I think you tee up nicely now. Uh, I've been curious to ask you about your book. Uh, interesting premise, post-colonial astrology. This was published by the tiny little publisher, Penguin Random House. That's got to be pretty exciting for you, Alice. Uh, but uh, post-colonial astrology, the, the, the cultural elements of astrology maybe is a conversation that we don't see commonly what what's the the jumping off point here the the premise of this exercise for you oh sure yeah well actually the publishers north atlantic books and then they publish a lot of books by uh people of color things like that and then uh they they distribute for penguin and then um so i think sometimes there's some confusion Mm -hmm. between them but um like so like the cultural conversation around astrology there's an assumption that western astrology is universal and that's not true uh western astrology has a really specific history and it's also a history that's changed through its memory of itself and what i mean by that is that western astrology it becomes western when it's remembered as western because you have to remember a lot of western astrology it's referencing uh, ancient rome and it's referencing also north africa persia things like that and these things they're not part of the west but some of these things they're remembered as being foundational to what we think of as the west so when we practice and we think about western astrology we're also actually looking at our relationships to the west and we're kind of unfolding that relationship too is any element of it problematic in your in your eyes with western astrology uh for example with a lot of what we're talking about with the sun and moon i mean this is gold and silver so we're talking about the difference between capital and money uh so there's a lot of problems with i mean with you know, these things as they exist. And then how we're using them is we're talking about the client's relationship to these things. So, you know, there's, there's problems 
all around us. Uh, what we're trying to do as consultants a lot of the time is we're trying to get people to talk about the problems. Hmm. This is, I mean, you don't hear a lot of people have conversations about this mainstream. And and, and I wonder why. I, I know that there's cynicism around it, which you're no stranger to, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that you welcome the questions. There's an interesting comment here from Newton who chimes in on our poll. He says, in an era where the rejection of science or poor scientific literacy is starting to damage us in many ways, you know, the fact that some people think this is an actual science, I can't help but feel that every erosion of the actual scientific process hurts us these days. How would you respond to Newton? Well, astrologers aren't scientists. Uh, you know, we're not pretending to be there. I, I, don't, I don't see any astrologer, at least that I know of, who's sitting here like, I'm a scientist. This is a scientific theory. Uh, like, again, a lot of the astrologers, I know we have art backgrounds, actually. Uh, we're actually... I mean, we're trying to make some uh, like creative things happen. Uh, a lot of people who go into astrology have social work backgrounds. We're talking, uh, we're trying to uh, heal people and heal communities. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess I don't know really how to respond to that because I like, yeah, I think it, maybe there's some kind of misunderstanding at play. Mm. Well, I think you did respond to it just fine. Uh, you're not claiming to be a scientist. It doesn't have to be a science. I mean, I think we've been talking about blurred lines, though, the whole I mean, almost the whole morning today, uh, more talking about credibility and political commentary and conflicts of interest or or things like that. But, uh, hey, it just goes to show that there are gray areas all over the place. For some people, it's their jam. For some people, it's not what cannot be denied. It is definitely more of a thing, it seems, with younger generations. Allison, you've been a huge part of that. Um, Alice is the author of Post-Colonial Astrology. You can follow them on Instagram, where about 50,000 other people do. And find him on Twitter as well at Alice Sparkly Cat. That's cat with a K. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. No, thanks for hanging out with me. This has been really great. I appreciate it. Um, my, my favorite part of the interview is right how it. Well, I mean, not my favorite part. I enjoyed talking to them. But but uh, <laughs> when Alice says, yeah, I voted for sure. They can be fun. Definitely wasn't expecting that. No, not at all. I, and I love that. Yeah, they say we're we're not a scientist. We're not a scientist. I saw an interesting comment from Ryan. I want to get to this on our live chat. Where is it? I have to find it. Oh, I'm going to blow it and I can't find it. But he said something along the lines of, you know, it's my favorite thing. Uh, Here it is. Because Ryan oftentimes will bring the heat into the chat in a good way. Bring the heat. Brings the heat. And he says people who criticize Christians and Jews and Muslims for their faith but love astrology and healing crystals are my favorite types of people. That from Ryan. You know what I'm curious about? Huh? I want to know if Jennifer Aniston's horoscopes and astrology said that she was going to fall back in love with an old time ex. With Brad Pitt? No, the rumor is. Oh, Ben, uh, what's his face? No. What? David. Spade. Schwimmer. Oh, jeez. Rachel and Ross. That's what's Ross go- and Rachel. Yes. In real life. In real life. That's what's going on. Slate has a new article about it. I've got a. I've got a bad habit of um, commenting on relationships that would never happen or that cannot be real. That cannot possibly be real. 
A classic example would be Lyle Lovett and Julia Roberts. And Carrie, my wife, will say to me, why not? And I'll say, "Uh, it just wouldn't happen. And she'll say, why not? And she'll like force me to spell it out. She'll force me to exhibit how shallow I am. I'm like, they would never be together. Why not? Well, because she's like a 10 and he's like a six. No, he is not. I Who are you talking about now? David Schwimmer? Or are we still talking about Lyle Lovett? Or Lyle Lovett. Lyle is, Lovett's a beauty. He's Don't amazing. get me wrong. Don't, of course he he's amazing. But, but he Julia Roberts, like, really? Julia Roberts in her prime? I'm talking in her acting prime. I, I think and otherwise I think that he is like leaps and bounds above <laughs> Julia Roberts <laughs> so so she was out of her league yeah she was definitely out of her depth yeah not out of her depth um Tracy says <laughs> agree to disagree I didn't actually think that we'd be debating this today I didn't see that one coming uh, wasn't in your horoscope okay um tracy says i am both christian and i follow crystals interesting uh, james says omg ross and rachel are back to get <laughs> you put james to sleep arnold says lyle lovett is not a six you fool he's hope says he's very compelling i'm not talking about his singing i'm not talking about his stage presence i'm talking about all of the above I'm baby about, yeah that's what I'm talking about. Alice, if they're still on the line, is like, did they just seriously take my entire interview and just drive it into the ditch with a debate on Ross and Rachel and Lyle Lovett and Julia Roberts? And we're going to get to some serious business in just a second. You're like, I can't even do this anymore. I want to point out uh, if you like what you're hearing or seeing here on the show, we love it. If you smash the like button, if you rate our podcast, if you leave a comment, a review, Here's a great reminder that you can sign up for free for our Real Talk Sunday message. Just go to RyanJesperson.com. Go to the bottom of the page. Subscribe. We don't spam you. We don't send you a bunch of junk. We send you an email every Sunday evening that lets you know what's coming up on the show. And Sarah does an amazing job finding and featuring a podcast review every time from somebody that leaves us a review. And it fills our sales, fills our bucket, so to speak. And uh, and we really appreciate that. I'm going to tempt fate and point out somebody just a couple people smashing the like button. We appreciate it. We are an hour and 58 minutes in and still no thumbs down. They must be on vacation. Cue the thumbs down. Well, someone, will, someone will give us one just for fun. Just just in just uh, just for fun. Somebody will be the first. Um, Tracy goes on to say, by the way, crystals and Reiki, 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 Tarot. Right. Tarot. Now you've messed me up. It's, it's she Reiki. Says, Reiki. She says Reiki like, and crystals follow God and positivity. So those who think it's devil's work don't understand. Keith, meantime, says I'm a four and a half and I landed at the 12. Attaboy. Um, Ryan is is uh, following up on his comment about people that crack on Christians and Jews. And you can just say people of faith. Right. We're not going to name every religion. Uh, people of faith and then, you know, buy into things like horoscopes and crystals. And, and he's criticizing my uh, my lack of, I think, uh, commentary on that. It's because I don't like to go after people's faith. I don't like to mock people for believing or not believing. I have my own personal perspectives on it. Well, I think it's important. You know, people are looking for purpose and yeah. looking for. Um, really, it's nobody else's me- business, quite frankly. Meaning. Yeah. And wherever you find it, more power to you. And that's truly like why I enjoy 
a little bit of astrology. Yeah. I don't, I, I picked the same thing. Like it's fun. Um, if you read your horoscope this morning and it said time to sell your house, would you list it? No. Okay. I don't, I'm not looking for like definitive answers. Like do this, turn left. Yes. You know, take that set of stairs. It's not a, like it's not a, you're not doing a choose your own adventure. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm just, I'm looking for a little bit of hope and um, a little bit of fun and maybe a little, I, I sound uh, whimsy. Like yeah, just looking sure. for a little bit of Why magic. Why not? It's in- fun. It's fun. I always love that when the, when the horoscopes are like, you should, you know, drop everything and go meet your friends at the driving range. I'm like, yep. <laughs> and if the horoscope's like, this is a great year to get back in shape and find the six pack you've always wanted. I'm like, nope. <laughs> Erica says, I'm sure Lyle Lovett has a deep and compelling personality. Oh, he and does. And I'm also sure oh. that Julia Roberts always wanted lights off during snuggle times. That from Erica. I want all Shots the on. fired, Erica. Shots fired. The team at Friesen Brothers wants to remind you a big part of what they do. I, I, we were out at, we were lucky enough to get to Cousin Carson's place. His mom and dad, Clark and Debbie, opened up the swimming pool on the grounds of the old family farm by Stony Plain. That's one of the 16 Alberta communities that has a Friesen Brothers. We're on our way out there, and I said to Cousin Carson, let us pick up the food. Dinner's on us. Not going to cook. There's no way I'm cooking. But I popped into the Friesen Brothers kitchen, picked up some incredible roasted veg, some smoked mushrooms, some braised beef short rib, some hot and ready to go salt and pepper wings, a fresh veggie platter, and then one of those father go, father dough ready to go pizzas. These aren't the frozen ones. They're not these lousy frozen pizzas. You go to my grocery store, my uninspired, boring, disorganized, corporately owned grocery store. They have frozen pizzas. These are not frozen. These are fresh and ready to go in the oven. It's just one of the reasons why we're so proud to partner with Friesen Brothers. For more than 65 years, they are Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Kubi Energy. There is jump in their step. They're so excited. They've told us that they've been in touch with the Winifred Stewart Association and the wheels are in motion to get those solar panels up on Joey's home. Very cool installation. The team at Kubi, they've got installers, certified installers, Tesla certified, as a matter of fact. You've got the journeymen and the apprentices up there on roofs across Western Canada right now. They do all the paperwork for you. They're the experts on where you can find some extra dollars to help your sustainable energy dream come true, including an agricultural subsidy available right now in the province of Alberta. You can find more by visiting them at kubienergy.ca. Wanted to read this from Stephanie before we sign off for the day. This was a great email yesterday. You can get us anytime. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. We were talking about the uh, Edmonton Police Service TikTok video. Uh, probably everybody's seen it by now. The WWE voiceover Stone Cold Steve Austin. The cop comes out, finds out that his daughter's boyfriend is there to pick her up at home, uh, crushes a couple cans of water, skulls them, gets into the cop car and takes it off with the lights going, the cherries as they call them. People have called it toxic masculinity people have said it's unprofessional and perhaps the most recurring comment that we saw is it just wasn't that funny uh the police service out of edmonton taking it down yesterday saying that it missed the mark and stephanie uh chimed in on our inbox says you know some points that your show brought up and also a couple points on what i think you missed stephanie says uh is some type of bro culture required in policing no says i'm not a bro i was never a cop but when i did work with police 
what I determined and observed, what is required is courage. I was used in an emergency operation where I walked up to a house that had reports of people with guns. My assignment was to get license plates and visuals. I didn't have a gun. I didn't have training. All I had was courage. A gang mentality is not required. Why the video did or why it's offensive is the the thought or the premise that police can use their position for any reason other than the legislated authority given to them. That's the underlying statement that's being made. It's the ultimate problem in my mind with police. If this was a regular person running to their vehicle or if the officer had run to their own vehicle, then the parent protecting child trope may apply with all the controversy that would still surround that one. But the officer jumps into a police vehicle marked and rushes off lights and sirens. The attitude that needs to be changed is that police forces across Canada can be guilty of systemic abuses of the legislated power differential that they're afforded. And they routinely do these small things. I know I worked for them for 12 years, but the small things are evidence that they believe they have the right to have power over people and that their position makes them special. The indoctrination starts through things like using emergency equipment outside of active police business or even not giving traffic violations out to one another. It can culminate in excessive use of force here in Canada, too. We just shoot people less frequently. Stephanie says it takes a very strong individual to not fall into this mental trap. Now, to be clear, some of these strong officers do exist. I've met them, but many more become indoctrinated into a community where their strength comes from the corruption of this power differential. I've seen this and more and the the bro thing or the gang thing, unthoughtful use, this power differential. It needs to be visible so it can change. Sarah's right, she says. She says, just one. I said this was one TikTok video. She says, even just one is not right because it's never just one. When is just one going to be stopped if nobody is taught that it's not okay? That from Stephanie. An awesome and thoughtful email. I know that not everybody will agree with Stephanie. Some of you will. You can always be in touch with the show. We read every email that we receive and we try to get to as many as we can through the course of the show. Thank you for your engagement. Coming up on tomorrow's show, I'm excited for the return of Alberta's former chief medical officer of health, Dr. James Talbot. He signed that letter to the prime minister. Remember, he scolded me last time he was on for saying Dr. Dina Hinshaw should resign. Has he changed his tune? We'll find out. Plus, what's with this new lawsuit? Métis settlements versus the government of alberta and of course prairie catering eat your words all coming up on tomorrow's show we'll talk to you then the go-